When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A The Golden Age Chapter 8 William Gladstone had been through a lot. Although his Liberal Party won the election in November 1868, he had been given much food for thought over what had happened over the previous years. The Abdullamites, MPs opposed to further electoral reform, had been absorbed back into the party once the Reform Bill of 1867 was passed. It had passed under the first premiership of Benjamin Disraeli, Gladstone's conservative rival, but the subsequent election with the new power of the voters ended the former's first spell as Prime Minister and brought Gladstone an overall majority in the House of Commons. Now it remained to be seen what he would do with it. Gladstone as a figure could not and did not please everyone. Some thought him too radical, some believed he would push through change to the detriment of the party or even the country. At the same time though they had to admire his oratorical skill, his undeniable flair and passions, his incorruptible sense of justice and purpose, and his boundless faith. He would need these attributes, because in the summer of 1869, Gladstone sought to tackle the issue of Ireland, more specifically its church. The Church of Ireland was a Protestant body that represented only a small number of Protestant Christians within Ireland, since the majority of the Irish remained Catholic. Separation of church and state remained one of Gladstone's aims in Ireland. To do so, he would have to remove the Church of Ireland's status as the official Church of the Irish. This privileged status of the Church of Ireland, which dated back centuries, ensured that all of the Irish paid tithes to support it, even though most wanted nothing to do with it, and chose instead their Catholic Mass. Typically, Gladstone ran into problems in the House of Lords, but eventually his bill was passed, and on the 1st of January 1871, the reality on the ground in Ireland would reflect the law. This was the first step for Gladstone's Irish reforms, but it was certainly not the last. Though he would encounter bitter opposition from the gentry and the lords and within the commons, many of whom had had friends in the Irish clergy or owned land in Ireland, and wanted the uneven situation to continue for their own reasons, Gladstone insisted on the change. 
It was part of his wider plan to bring Ireland closer to Britain through a series of reforms aimed at bettering the lives of the Irish, the vast majority of whom had been skirted around in the latest electoral reforms. With the passing of the Irish Church Act, Gladstone seemed content to turn his focus to a number of other contentious issues. He reformed education with another bill aimed at providing all children of school-going age with proper education in a scheme called the Elementary Education Act. He legalised trade unions, he pushed through as compulsory the practice of secret ballots to ensure better voting practice. Finally, he passed new legislation aimed at restricting and controlling the opening hours of pubs. This move, while appearing sensible to us, was too much for the drink-loving segments of the population or for the publicans themselves. It was said that after the passing of the legislation in 1872, each pub made room for a conservative office or committee room, because that party promised to reverse such measures and give the power back to the publicans. Gladstone would later blame Disraeli's political victories on this act. He would amusingly claim that, we have been borne down on a torrent of gin and beer. For Gladstone, though, the financials were one of his great passions. Having served as Chancellor of the Exchequer for most of his life, it was essential to him that spending was kept low and that the people felt as though their politicians were wisely spending the money. Gladstone tasked Robert Lowe, the former Abdullamite, now a returned Liberal, with accomplishing such financial feats, but he soon realised that he had made a mistake. Perhaps he was simply trying to heal the rifts within his own party by granting his former turncoat a period in office, but the plan backfired when Lowe proved unwilling or unable to reduce taxation or increase investment. Gladstone would eventually replace Lowe himself in mid-1873, but he would have to admit that Lowe's refusal to reduce the tax rate had actually ensured that Britain's national debt went down, and that by the end of the Gladstonian administration in 1874, Britain enjoyed a surplus of £17 million. Foreign events had persuaded Gladstone as well as others in the cabinet of the need to reform the British Army too. Flogging was abolished with the aim to make the army a more professional body. The purchase and sale of commissions were also determinedly done away with once and for all. These so-called Cardwell reforms, named after the Secretary of State for War Edward Cardwell, who implemented them in the early 1870s, also ensured that the militia were integrated better into the army with a well-rounded service tenure of six years. This would, it was believed, ensure a better circulation of trained reservists across the empire. It also ensured, certainly not by accident, that the number of reservists available for service in foreign lands had risen from 3,500 to 35,000. This sharp increase had much to do with the tide of reform itself and the inherent need of the old British system to change, which dated back to the Crimean War. But it also had a lot to do with significant events on the continent and the dramatic emergence of a formidable Chancellor who suddenly headed the most powerful state in Europe. Gladstone would have been hopelessly ill-equipped to predict the significance and consequences of the events of the Franco-Prussian War which themselves had their genesis in events that Gladstone knew well and had served through, such as the Danish and Austro-Prussian Wars. With this latest coup against the French, Germany, not Prussia, now existed to haunt the sensibilities and nightmares of the reactionaries in Gladstone's cabinet, some of whom suspected that the overturning of France represented the end of an era, and the beginning of a continent in awe of German power. In a sense, they were correct. 
Yet the Germans did not dwell in Paris or seek to take over the French once they had soundly defeated them and captured their emperor. Otto von Bismarck, the tenacious and wily statesman now at the head of the German superpower, wanted to preserve through peace what had been gained through six years of war, and so he set about constructing a continental league aimed at isolating France from any potential allies. Austria-Hungary and Russia were Bismarck's major partners in this strategy, but Britain did not have to be left out of the equation altogether. Gladstone was wary of Bismarck acquiring his pound of flesh from the French in the form of Alsace and Lorraine, since he insisted that this would keep alive the prospect of another continental war for their foreseeable future. And in a sense, he was correct in this belief too. Yet Gladstone was forced to recognise that, while the balance of power seemed to have swung dramatically in Germany's favour, Bismarck was far from London's enemy. In a lesson which so many future statesmen would fail to appreciate in Britain, the skies had not fallen in with so great and complete a victory. Europe was certainly different, but British foreign policy remained focused on the exploits of the old enemy, Russia, rather than on gaining the favour or avoiding the wrath of the new power of Germany. It was more of the same, or was it? In early February 1871, in a speech to the House of Commons, Benjamin Disraeli claimed that the Franco-Prussian War was no common war, like those of the century that had preceded it. The war represents the German Revolution, Disraeli claimed, a greater political event than the French Revolution of the last century. And Disraeli wasn't finished there. In a statement which was wrongfully cited for the next century in historical circles, and in some cases still is, Disraeli claimed that The balance of power has been entirely destroyed, and the country which suffers more and feels the effects of this change most is England. As Christopher Clarke perceptively noted, Disraeli was not referring here to Germany's newfound unity as the foil to England's balance of power, or at least not directly. What Disraeli was concerned about was that France, now determined for revenge after the thrashing it received from Germany, would no longer fulfil its other commitments to its other foreign policy objectives, such as, as Clark construes, the 1856 Treaty of Paris, which ended the Crimean War and limited Russian armaments in the Black Sea. As per these terms, a Russian failure to uphold the treaty would have led to an Anglo-French attack, and this was an understanding that Paris and London had reached in the years after 1856, so that Russia could never again threaten the balance of power in the Black Sea, Mediterranean or elsewhere by its rearming. With France defeated, humiliated and distracted by the new German problem though, British statesmen like Disraeli feared that they would now have to enforce the terms of the Treaty of Paris alone, something they did not feel confident of their success in. Paris had, by the time of Disraeli's speech, already repudiated its commitment to the Treaty of Paris of 1856, perhaps due to a vision of Franco-Russian cooperation against Germany in the future, or perhaps to stick it to Britain for not aiding it in its war with Prussia and then Germany. Either way, with France out of the equation, Clark notes that Russia wasted no time in investing resources towards a new Sevastopol. St. Petersburg perceived that Britain would be powerless to enforce the terms by itself, while Britain perceived that it would never be able to make Russia do anything without the added French weight. The result was a resurgence in Russian power, at least as far as London was concerned, and the beginnings of an Anglo-Russian Cold War that would last up to the First World War. 
Disraeli was thus incredibly accurate in his assertion that the balance of power had been destroyed. Germany had destroyed it, but it was Russia, not Germany, which Britain looked to with increased apprehension. Russia had pursued, in previous years, a policy of legitimate expansion as it found its way to the coast. Yet, as Disraeli insisted, Russia had no moral claim to Constantinople and no political necessity to go there. Therefore, this was not a legitimate but a disturbing policy. Disraeli may have seemed somewhat exasperated by the Franco-German War, which he claimed had dislocated the whole machinery of states. But it was Russia that would now turn its vengeful gaze towards Britain and its hungry eyes towards the Dardanelles. As alarming as the Russian resurgence and French collapse may have been to Disraeli and Gladstone alike, the latter was investing his energies in more tangible projects. For some time since the beginning of the 1860s, Britain's relationship with the United States of America had plummeted. This had been exasperated by the Civil War and its tendency to create international incidents, most notably the Trent Affair, which saw the Union violate rules of international sovereignty by boarding a British ship to seize the Confederate diplomats on board. Despite the likelihood for friction between the two, though, as we saw last time, once the Trent Affair blew over, Britain brought its own attentions back to base and away from any prospect of war with the North. Similarly, once the war ended in America and the Reconstruction began under former General, now President, Ulysses Grant, British and American statesmen began to believe in the benefits of even closer cooperation, but a few details still had to be ironed out before this could be made good. On the 15th of June 1846, the Oregon Treaty had been signed, with the aim of ironing out the boundary disputes between the United States and Britain's Canadian possessions, but in actual fact it was dangerously ambiguous. When, exactly 13 years later, a pig was shot dead by an American settler on San Juan Island, an island claimed by the US and Britain, and a bone of contention for both, tensions seemed to rise all too easily. British agents acting under the authority of the Hudson's Bay Company mobilised to arrest the American trespasser, while the US sent 60 men north to prevent any British agents landing on the island. This so-called pig war set in motion a chain of escalation, where neither Britain nor America would agree to others' interpretation of the Oregon Treaty, and neither seemed willing to back down. An actual war would have been catastrophic for both so delegates from both states were sent to meet in San Juan Island and hammer out terms. When these terms proved hard to settle on, and with trouble brewing in the US that would soon explode into war, it was settled that both Britain and the US would carve the island of San Juan up between them for the moment, with Britain getting the north of it and the US getting the south. This state of affairs continued throughout the Civil War, and despite alleged agitation by both sides, peace remained in place. Mutual cooperation continued, until the presidency of Ulysses Grant began. With the British conceding that joint occupation and continuous tensions were a waste of resources, some in London also upheld that opportunities for mutual cooperation could be had, which would in turn lead to better trade deals and a more advantageous diplomacy. Commissions for both countries met in Washington with a view towards resolving this pig war dispute and putting the issue up to international arbitration, while additional issues, one being the Alabama claims, were also on the agenda. 
The Alabama claims were those based on compensation that the Union wished to claim from the Confederate use of British-built ships. The British construction of these ships, so the Union and now American government claimed, violated the neutrality which London had initially declared because it had enabled the enemy of the Union to attack her and sink her shipping, as well as prolong the war. These claims were heavily disputed by the British, who claimed no guilt in the act, and argued that they couldn't be blamed for what their ships did in America, any more than the Americans could be blamed for what their guns did in Europe. Despite the intensity of the dispute, the Alabama claims were, like everything else which eventually became consolidated into the Treaty of Washington in 1871, resolved with remarkable amity and calmness. After international arbitration, the British agreed to hand over San Juan Island and pay the Americans $15.5 million in compensation for the damage wrought by their ships against the Union, although the British delegation refused to openly admit guilt. America's delegates agreed that their nation would pay part of the cost of the Canadian Pacific Railway, which was soon to come under construction. While they also agreed to help police the immigration of Irish Americans to Ireland, which the British insisted were causing considerable unrest there. With the border disputes resolved, the Canadian-American border became less and less militarised, while the British in time would become less wary of the need to protect themselves from American attack. The American delegation also officially recognised the existence of Canada as a country indisputably sovereign and possessing a unique identity from their own. These were huge steps for the Anglo-American relationship to take in 1871, and paved the way for what was later termed the Great Rapprochement of the 1890s. It helped ensure that while Britain remained wary of Russian expansion, it would no longer have to keep forces on hand in Canada to protect against potential American attack. Furthermore, it served as a great lesson to the wider international community of what two states could really achieve if they really desired peace. The later Congress of Berlin in 1878 would take great lessons from the strides in international law made here. Gladstone could not rest on the successes here, though. He was forced to redirect his attentions to other spheres before long. With a few small exceptions, ever since the Liberal Party had been established, it had effectively monopolised its control over British politics. Conservative credibility had been damaged by the passing of the Reform Bill in 1867, not just because its passing threatened the old landed gentry's hold on the vote, but because the average citizen appeared to have more power in forcing the Conservatives to listen and adopt policy accordingly. When Disraeli lost the election to Gladstone in late 1868, he must have felt the blow especially hard, since his first premiership had been snatched away by the ever-snatching Gladstone, and Disraeli indeed came under fire from his colleagues in the House of Commons when it was perceived that, in the early 1870s, he was unable to effectively challenge the Liberal hold on politics. Disraeli was not simply holding back, though. He was biding his time in opposition until the right moment came to strike just like he had done with the Abdullamites of before. William Gladstone at his core seemed to believe in the importance of public opinion as a factor in his government's legitimacy. To put it another way, Gladstone believed that if the people did not want or believe in the promise of his government any longer, then that government should vacate office or call for an election, even if it held a majority in the House of Commons, as the Liberals continued to do. This belief compelled Gladstone to constantly check which way the public wind was blowing, and what he discovered would lead him to make an incredible decision. In early 1872, Gladstone claimed that, 
We recognize the title of the country to be governed in conformity with its wishes and intelligence, and the mere possession of a parliamentary majority, satisfactory as it is when it is a true indication of the actual current of feeling and opinion of the country, is no adequate support and no adequate warrant for the continuance of a government in office if it has become clear, or when there is reasonable ground for supposing that the desires of the country are in an opposite direction. Principles such as these do not make Gladstone a saint, but they certainly do set him apart from the perception you may have had of statesmen and politicians in the 19th century, whose sole goal revolved around gaining office or positions of power, and then holding onto them for all they were worth. Gladstone could not hide the fact that the Liberals had dominated for the past 15 years, but he accepted at the same time that this dominance had come at the price of legitimacy, at least in the minds of the electorate. Despite the Liberal victory in the 1868 polls, Conservative politicians had won a number of symbolic by-elections in the subsequent years, which cast a shadow over the belief that the Liberal hold on politics was total. Conservative victories in working-class areas or in industrial bastions that had previously proved to be a guaranteed win for the Liberals now forced Gladstone to ask some tough questions. Why were the Liberals losing ground? Was it a groundswell of support for the Conservatives, or merely a protest vote against the incumbent government. Did it suggest the need to change how his party was doing things, or, as some of his colleagues feared, did it mean that Gladstone would be forced, mostly by his own convictions, to call for an early election once he felt that he did not hold the majority of the electorate's support? It was not enough for Gladstone to hold or control most of the seats in Parliament, and thereby have a guaranteed route through which he could pass the numerous reforms which we've already covered in this episode. Gladstone seemed to want, above all, to have the confidence of the people, not just their votes. Once in power, the people could not withdraw the vote they had cast in support of the Liberals, but their opinions could change, and the once rosy view they had had of the Liberals would change with those opinions. Gladstone's concern with keeping up with the current public opinion trends and seeking to accommodate them could teach modern-day politicians a thing or two about democratic principles, but it is difficult to state outright whether Gladstone really was the people's William, as has been claimed, or whether he was simply evolving his political ethos in tune with the growing importance of the electorate's opinion. Public opinion is certainly a difficult aspect of one's political campaign to always get right, and Gladstone could justifiably claim to have achieved a great number of commendable reforms in the army and education, as well as representing Britain abroad. Gladstone had held office consistently, but for a few breaks since 1858. What he couldn't control was the spreading public perception that the Liberals were becoming stagnant and that the moral supremacy of the Liberals was weakening in the face of Disraeli's furious attempts to modernise his own party and bring it back into direct competition with Gladstone. It was within the atmosphere of liberal stagnation that Disraeli began to launch a series of devastating attacks against Gladstone and his government. Gladstone's Irish reforms, his approval for a Catholic university in Ireland, that was the precursor to University College Dublin, I'll have you know, and his opposition to a royal residence there, all painted a picture of an Irish sympathiser. His success in finally settling the Alabama claims and ending the pointless American feud was reinterpreted and represented by Disraeli as Britain's postulation before the American threat. The Liberals' by-election losses were emphasised as the symptoms of a party sick with the disease of stagnation and infighting, 
While Gladstone's calmness and barely veiled disinterest when it came to the Franco-Prussian War were upheld as examples of the man's personal weakness and inability to maintain a foil to Russia on the continent. Gladstone may not have agreed with Disraeli's interpretations, but he had to accept at the same time that those within his own party did not wholly agree with his own methods either. And just like in the old days, when he had served under Lord Palmerston with a certain zeal that unnerved his peers, so too did Gladstone have the tendency to divide the older Whigs with his stance on issues like Ireland and the Church, while the Radicals believed that he always ceased to go far enough. Only the middle-of-the-road liberals, many of them inexperienced, younger, and borrowing their ideology from both extremes of the party, were content to accept Gladstone without reservations. But we should also remember that during the tenure of the government, layers of opposition to him definitely existed, while Gladstone himself reacted by digging in his heels and refusing to compromise. Politics for him had to exist in a certain fashion or not at all. He would not bend in his principles or beliefs, he would only break and remove himself from government. If the people did not want him, he was not about to accommodate their tastes at the expense of his own convictions. Gladstone was, from what I can gather at least, an all-or-nothing kind of guy. While Gladstone faced these internal as well as external issues, Disraeli began a campaign of public speaking engineered by his new party manager, John Eldon Gorst. Gorst was a fan of the oratorical flair of the House of Commons, of rallies whereby people could be swayed and reached with a touch that no pamphlet or newspaper advertisement could match. It was not enough, Gorst told Disraeli, to simply attack and combat the Liberals in Parliament. He would have to capitalise on Liberal dissension by simultaneously building a new Conservative base. To do this in spring 1872, Disraeli planned to visit the north of England, which would culminate in a lengthy three-hour epic of a speech in Manchester on Easter Monday. Disraeli was not completely thrilled about the idea, since he recognised that his strongest oratory came from attacking his opponents with sarcasm, withering criticism and a blisteringly quick wit. It was harder to apply these talents to a huge rally where sincerity, compassion and the ability to communicate with the common man would be more important and effective. In these latter talents, Disraeli did understand and appreciate that Gladstone was far more accomplished, but he remained determined, if a tad anxious, to stick it to the Liberals in the most public forum nonetheless. Benjamin Disraeli was forced to arrive a day late to Manchester, getting there on Easter Monday rather than the day before, as had been planned in 1872, due to the frail nature of his wife Mary Ann. Despite this hiccup, Disraeli was greeted with a plethora of well-wishers when the train pulled into the city, and when Disraeli arrived at his destination to speak the next day, ironically it was to be made in the Free Trade Hall, he was greeted with a still more impressive turnout, and the building itself was packed to bursting. Disraeli was regularly fortified during his three-hour speech with two bottles of white brandy, as one of his colleagues would later note, as though it was a normal thing to do. In the first hour, Disraeli alluded to the importance of public health and of the contributions of the working class, allusions which suggested that a social conservatism of sorts may have been in the pipeline, and that Disraeli was finally attempting to combat the liberal monopoly on the workers' heart and mind. The second and third hour both contained heavy critiques of the government's administration of the empire, as well as the Liberal Party's patriotism. 
If you look at the history of this country since the advent of liberalism, Disraeli claimed, you will find that there has been no effort so continuous, so subtle, supported by so much energy and carried out with so much ability and acumen as the attempts of liberalism to effect the disintegration of the Empire of England. To conclude his speech, Disraeli made a direct appeal to the people, advising them that the time had come to choose between conservative, national, or liberal, cosmopolitan, principles to guide the country. You must act as if everything depended on your individual efforts. Act in this spirit and you will succeed. You will maintain this country in its present position. But you will also do more than that. You will deliver to your posterity a land of liberty, prosperity, power, and glory. The building erupted, and Disraeli would later note that, It is all well and good, I feel my position assured. With such a great result from his speaking tour that culminated here, Disraeli had effectively transformed the Conservatives from a party of the elite to one dedicated to the representation of the masses. It was, in the opinion of the historian Richard Aldous in his book, The Lion and the Unicorn, Gladstone and Disraeli, quote, a symbolic moment of transformation. The Conservatives had moved into the age of mass politics, and Disraeli had cemented his place as their leader, end quote. It had to be a deeply satisfying moment of personal victory for Disraeli, who must have believed that he was on the cusp of political triumph at last. But personal tragedy was to cloud this win. In the audience of his speech in Manchester, Marianne Disraeli, his wife of over 30 years, had to be regularly escorted out of the hall for fresh air and rest, since she insisted on standing for the speech's duration in the stuffy confines of the hall to support her husband. Marianne was fading fast, as her frail body buckled under the strain of cancer which had so long plagued her health. After exhausting herself in Manchester, Marianne's health rapidly went downhill. Disraeli became more and more doting as he simultaneously became more desperate as the reality of a future without his greatest love dawned. To see her weaker and weaker every day is heartrending, Disraeli wrote to a friend in late summer 1872. To witness the gradual death of one who has shared so long and so completely my life unmans me. While Parliament sat throughout the late summer and early autumn 1872, Disraeli longed to bring Marianne away from London and back home where she could take in the fresh country air and be away from prying eyes. To achieve such an end, he even persuaded the House of Lords to cave in and accept the new ballot bill which would enshrine the secret ballot into British law. Disraeli did not want to remain in London any longer than he had to, especially not for the sake of the overmighty gentleman that insisted on fighting a losing battle against even what he perceived as much-needed reforms. So, in late October 1872, he left London with his ailing wife to travel to Hugh Endon, his country estate. It was the last journey they would take together. Disraeli organised a last weekend party for Marianne in November, with guests consisting of all the friends she had made over the years. She was, as one reveller remembered, sadly altered in looks since London. Death is written on her face, though she remains gorgeously dressed. It was to be her last social outing, and though she and Disraeli warmly thanked the guests for coming and waved them off, all knew too well the tragic reality that they would never see Lady Beaconsfield alive again. In the beginning of December 1872 she caught pneumonia, and her health began to deteriorate still further. I am totally unable to meet the catastrophe, 
Disraeli would confess to his solicitor, and the local rector was called to reassess her health and, perhaps more importantly, inquire about her soul. In an affectionate reminiscence to one of her many friends in the days before her death, she confided, He, the rector, told me to turn my thoughts to Jesus Christ, but I couldn't. You know Dizzy is my JC. On the 15th of December, 1872, Marianne Disraeli, Lady Beaconsfield, passed away. At her funeral, Disraeli appeared so incurably depressed and downtrodden that colleagues and mourners alike wondered if he would ever be the same, let alone return to politics. He followed behind the coffin as it was brought to the grave, trudging through the winter mud and pouring rain. Onlookers said that once every other mourner had left, Disraeli stood still and stared, bareheaded and soaked, into the open grave for over half an hour before a colleague fetched him. Disraeli insisted on walking back up in the downpour. I am in a cave of despair, he would claim, when the first Christmas without his wife came to pass. In the event, the horrendous personal tragedy that Disraeli experienced in late 1872 could have torpedoed his career, and instead of the wily and towering political figure, history would instead cast him as the distraught statesman who was crippled while on the cusp of greatness by a terrible personal loss. Instead, a personal epiphany, or perhaps his own personality, saved his career and altered his future. Spare time, as Disraeli quickly recognized, was his greatest enemy now that Marianne was gone. Thus he poured his... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Energies into politics like never before, rather than retire from politics as some had suspected he would. It was a defining choice. Disraeli had received and now survived the strongest blow life could deal him. Instead of retirement, he had chosen the other direction at the crossroads, and now his destiny was to be fused with that of the Conservatives. 
In January 1873, he conferred with his colleagues at Hugh Endon about the political campaigns to come. 1873 was destined to be a tough year for Disraeli, but it was also destined to be the last he would ever spend in opposition. The break Gladstone had enjoyed in Disraeli's sniping and scheming had ended. Now the two men were destined to resume their rivalry once more, with results more spectacular than Disraeli could ever have hoped for. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 